Welcome back to Take a Minute. My name is Andy. On this show, we take a minute and hear from local voices. On today's show, we'll be talking to Sue Gray, Riley Burley, and Greg Albrecht about some of Carbondale's first. Hope you enjoy. Here is Sue Gray. We talk to her about the history of our town, Carbondale. I am Sue Gray, and I'm the vice president of the Carbondale Historical Society. When was Carbondale first declared a town? Uh, It was incorporated in 1888, and it was named for the surveyor Ellery Johnson's hometown in Pennsylvania. What was the town doing at that point? Uh, The town was starting out, and so businesses were starting to open up around Main Street. Uh, A lot of people were here for mining, so coal mining was big around this area. And then agriculture started pretty soon after that because the miners needed to eat and the miners' families and all of that. So we had mining and agriculture when we started out. What was the first major building in Carbondale? That would be the Dinkle Building, which took up the whole city block at 4th and Main Street. It's still there. And uh, so that was built in 1889 by William Mansfield Dinkle. And he was a merchant, a banker, a broker, and a statesman. He was mayor of Carbondale for a few years. And uh, in 1890, there was a big fire that uh, destroyed the eastern part of Main Street, which is where most of the buildings were, and they were all made out of wood. So he had built his brick building, and that's where they had the Bank of Carbondale, and that's where Steve's Guitars is now. And it also had the Dinkle Mercantile, which is where the Black Nugget is now, and the Potato Brokerage, which was where Bonfire Coffee is. And you know that elevator in the back of Bonfire Coffee, that was used to take the potato sacks down to the basement to store them down there. And there was a hotel upstairs. In the 1980s, KDNK was located in the Dinkle Building, and that's why it was called KDNK, K-Dink. What's the biggest change you've noticed over the years in Carbondale? I'd say the last 50 years has seen a big change. As I said, uh, Carbondale was all about mining and ranching. And in the last 50 years, mining and ranching have both um, waned. And in its place, we've become more of a tourism economy. Uh, So outdoor recreation and the arts and that kind of thing has replaced mining and ranching as our main sources of economy. So that's changed our town quite a bit because now we're more about recreation and tourism. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, I'd have to say that one thing that's stayed the same all throughout the years since the beginning is Carbondale is a very close community. We're very community-oriented, and we have a lot of celebrations together, and we're very... Um, involved in each other's lives, basically. We have Katie and Kay, we have the Soper Sun, so we know all about our community, and thank you very much for what you're doing, uh, spreading Thanks. the word about our community. So I think we just have a wonderful community here, and we have a great history, which I think more people would be interested in learning about, and they can go to our uh, website, carbondalehistory.org, and learn about all about Carbondale's history. And we also have a museum, the Thompson House Museum, which is open by appointment. So people can go there and learn about our early ranching history. And we also have a podcast. So there's lots of ways you can learn about Carbondale history.
the jail was the original jail that used to be on Main Street, and it got moved over there in the 1990s and became a uh, part of the Carbondale Historical Society Museum. Uh, it's currently used by Sarah Yule, who's an artist, so we rent it out as an artist studio. And the cabin was built by three of our early pioneers, Myron Thompson, Samuel Bowles, and Oscar Holland. It's a, it was an original pioneer homesteader cabin. And that was moved over from its original location over on the Crystal River to that jail and cabin history park. And that's our headquarters now. And it's also a museum. And we made it into the Dinkle Mercantile Museum. So we're paying homage to Mr. Dinkle and his mercantile in that museum. And that's only open in the summertime. Thank you, Sue. We will now hear from Raleigh Burley about the Sopu Sun. My name is Raleigh Burley, and I'm the editor and chief at the Soper Sun. What got you interested with working them, with them? Um, I started out, I was working for KDNK at the time, getting into local journalism on the radio side of things, and I was invited to join the board of the Sopra Sun, and I thought that seemed like a good opportunity to learn more about the print side of local journalism as well. And uh, upon completing my three years on the board, it happened that Will Grambois, the previous editor, uh, was stepping down, and I wanted to see the Sopra Sun continue to shine bright and, and thought it was also a good opportunity for me to step in and try out that role. What got you interested with working with the Soper Sun? I think, um, you know, I feel like sometimes with media, it's so big. We hear these stories like on CNN or NPR that are so much bigger than we can do much to address. Um, but with local journalism, you really do have that opportunity to make a difference and you feel the way that the things directly impact your own life. When was the first edition printed? So the first edition of the Soper Sun was printed on February 12th, 2009. It was kind of a cool story. Um, previous to the Soper Sun, there was a newspaper called the Valley Journal, and this was going since the 70s. Went all the way up uh, to 2008, right before Christmas, and it had been purchased by a bigger company called Swift Newspapers. And when the recession happened in 2008, um, they were looking at where they could save money and and basically end operations. And so they cut the Valley Journal, which was a weekly newspaper since the 70s. And it only took six weeks for some local Carbondalians to put together the Sopra Sun as a nonprofit weekly newspaper. So it's kind of got some built-in independence. And um, so actually one of the KDNK DJs here, the Leslie Johnson, was on the cover uh, with a child from Haiti. Um, but yeah, I think more or less just celebrating independence and our town and, and local media. How long have you been involved with the journalism part of the Soper Sun? So I've been editor for nearly a year now. Um, I did periodically do some writing for the Soper Sun while I worked for KDNK previous to that. How have you noticed the Soper Sun has changed over the years since you've been working there? Um, I think that it's a small operation, so the people who are a part of it make a big difference. Um, 
people bringing their vision either from the board or layout, the writers to the editor. Everybody's sort of contributing to make it what it is. And I think because it's a small operation, um, each person's contribution has a pretty big impact. Sol del Valle is the Spanish insert. That's a part of uh, the Soper Sun. We started it in March of 2021, um, and it's seen a lot of success. People are really receiving it well. Um, haven't heard much negative feedback about it, so it says a lot about our community, too, that people are receptive to having a bilingual component to their local newspaper. If you could change one thing or add one thing to the Soper Sun, what would that be? Um, I would love for us to have... Uh, a, an even greater budget so that we can pay our freelancers fairly and and continue to support all the contributors. I think one thing that's neat about the Sopra Sun is we involve cartoonists, we involve puzzle makers, photographers, writers, um, and so making it this sort of community expose of different talents that people have and, and also being able to pay them fairly for their contributions. Is there anything else you'd like to add to any of that? Um, just a big shout out to the founding board of directors, Russ Criswell, Peggy DeVilbis, Alan Harvey, Colin Laird, Barbara New, Elizabeth Phillips, and Becky Young for having the tenacity to pull together a nonprofit newspaper out of the ashes of the Valley Journal. It's cool to see it approaching 14 years now. Thank you for sharing, Ari. Up next is Greg Albrecht, the director of KDK Radio. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Take a Minute. I'm Andy B. On this show, we are taking a minute and hearing from local voices about the history of Carbondale. Greg? My name is Greg Albrecht, and I am the executive director at KDK. How long have you been with the station? Almost exactly four years now, and I originally started as the underwriting manager um, in charge of finding uh, organizations that wanted to support the station. And then I was the development director, pretty much in charge of all relationship building and and, uh, donations, whether it be organizations or uh, individuals. And as of uh, mid-December last year, I've been executive director here. What does it mean to be a community access radio? It means a lot, actually. It's uh, kind of a privilege, and at the same time, it's uh, an honor, and it's a big responsibility. And as a community access radio station, our mission is to connect community with one another, and we do that through our airwaves. And as a community access radio station, we have a responsibility to get as many people and causes and organizations on our airwaves to be able to inform the community about such things and at the same time provide music to those listeners as well and our members. One way we accomplish that community access is by having nearly 100 volunteer DJs. 76 of those are music DJs, 24 of those are public affairs show host DJs, and that doesn't even include all of you, uh, the Andy Zanka DJs. So there's however many of those as well. So you can probably see where this is going, that all of a sudden we're providing access to our air- airwaves to over 100 individuals in the community and giving them voice. 
that's one way we accomplish that. The other way is by making sure that we are finding out community-relevant news throughout our listening areas and informing the community and connecting the community in that way. Uh, We also want to make sure that organizations that are of service to our listening areas have a voice and can connect with uh, our members and listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about the signals in the Valley? Yes, we have nine signals. Our main signal is 88.1, and that signal is a facility on the top of Sunlight Peak, which is across from Sunlight Ski Area. happens to be a higher peak than Sunlight Ski Area. There is quite a bit of other communications facilities up there, but KDNK's main 88.1 signal. We actually share a facility with uh, CPR and Aspen Public Radio, and uh, that main 88.1 is what broadcasts to other facilities to retransmit to 88.3 in Glenwood Springs. Glenwood Springs is a facility at the top of Iron Mountain at Glenwood Adventure Park. 88.3 in Aspen is our facility at the top of Red Mountain in Aspen. Uh, 88.5 in Basalt. 88.5 in Redstone is a facility on top of Elephant Mountain in Redstone. Um, 93.5 in Leadville. I actually just learned a story behind that, that that came about in 2005 uh, because a resident in Leadville had a cabin at 11,600 feet and was finding that he could get 88.1 all the way over on Sunlight Peak all the way to his cabin at 11,600 feet in Leadville. He contacted KDNK and thought, hey, we can can receive this signal up here and retransmit it to Leadville. And that's why we have 93.5 in Leadville. 94.7 in Old Snowmass and 94.9 in Thomasville. That's up the frying pan road past Rudai Reservoir and 99.9 in Snowmass Village. Do you guys have any future plans? Well, one one in our communities we serve that would be nice, we've discussed some about finding a way to try to transmit into Newcastle because Burnt Mountain on the other side of Newcastle blocks our signal from Sunlight Peak. And then other, maybe not expansion type things, but uh, even I talked to Mountain about this at one point about the prospect of, well, I love taking adventure up to the facility in Leadville. We could probably just as well bring it down with a broadband feed to maybe CMC in Leadville and then transmit off the roof of CMC in Leadville. But we're keeping our eye on technology and what makes most sense for KDNK's long-term future. How many members does KDNK have outside of the Valley? So I don't know that I can give you an exact number on that, but I would guess, and let's say that the Valley, we're talking about both the Roaring Fork Valley and the the Colorado River Valley to rifle. So outside of that area, I would guess about 100 to 150. Um, To give you a a decent idea kind of of our membership breakdown, um, and of course this would include Missouri Heights and so forth, of about 1,300 members, 46% of them have an 81623 or Carbondale zip code. Keeping in mind also those zip codes go into uh, redstone and marble as well. About 25% have a basalt and aspen zip code. And then I would say about another 20% are Glenwood to Rifle or the Colorado River Valley area. 
and then after that it would be uh, people outside. Uh, How can people become a member? Um, so, uh, in a multitude of ways. Um, one, they can call us here at the station at 9630139 and talk to anyone here, actually, and we will be able to help. If you'd like to ask for me, I'd love to talk to you, um, or Kenna, our membership director, but truly anyone on staff would be happy to help you become a member by calling that number, 9630139. You could also go online at kdnk.org, and there's a donate button that's up in the right-hand corner that's really easy to see, and you can could donate by credit card. Um you could also, I, what I really love about this facility as well is it's, it's a community center. And uh, uh, whether you're coming to be a member or not, um, people are wel- welcome to stop by any time and learn more about us. They were located at 2nd and Main on Carbondale in the red brick building with the totem pole in front. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I'd like to add thank you for honoring me with this interview. And great job. Um, it uh, really warms my heart to see you doing this, Andy, as well as doing it by Mountainside. Um, that's another thing that I'm proud that we facilitate here at KDNK is learning and mentorship in radio. So thank you, guys. Thanks, Greg. Now we have a bonus guest, Amy Kimberly from the Carbondale Arts Center, talking about Mountain Fair. I'm Amy Kimberly, and I'm the executive director of Carbondale Arts and the Carbondale Creative District. What got you involved with the Carbondale Arts? Well, you know, it really started with KDNK. I worked here at the radio station. I was the development director. We did some bingo uh weekends at the Mountain Fair one year, and uh, the directorship came up in 2004 to be the director of the Mountain Fair, but not the Arts Council. So for a while, I got to do the Mountain Fair and still be at KDNK. So I thought I had really the best. I got to be with the best of both worlds there. Um, But eventually, I uh, left KDNK and ended up going full-time with uh, the Carbondale Arts. What's the earliest mountain fair you remember? <laughs> well, actually, I did go to a mountain fair probably like in 1990 or 91. Uh, my kids were real little, and I remember we went there, and my daughter fell in the ditch and started crying profusely and that was the end of my mountain fair experience for that year and then I didn't get there again until like 2000 and probably three. I moved to Carbondale in 2001. I had been living in Telluride for 18 years before that. Have you noticed this changed over mountain fair since you've been working there? Well, let's see. I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about mountain fair is that it doesn't really change the people that participate maybe evolve in ways like there's lots more younger people involved right now and that's a good thing because it's going to be up to all of you to take over the fair um, as as we get older because that's how the fair works so um, I think there's been maybe more people, for sure. And then last year, we did change by moving some some booths out on the street. But the magic of Mountain Fair is that it's always been magic, and, and, and it still stays there. And we really honor the age-old 
um, ethos of it, which is it has to mainly be run by volunteers, and we can't have visible sponsorship anywhere. So, you know, it can't be the Coca-Cola stage or yeah. the, you know, anything like that. And keeping those two things really makes it a community-based experience. Do you know about anything for the future? Like, what's either going to be added or just what's the next steps for Mountain Fair? Why well, do we are going through some changes, Mark Taylor and I, and Mark Taylor has actually been running the fair with me uh, longer than I have been there. So he's been there a long time. We're passing the gauntlet, as they say, to James Gorman and Deb Colley and Ali Sanguili. And, you know, this is part of the evolution of the fair. They've been volunteering and working with us, and, and now they're really ready to take the helm. So us, us old folks are stepping back, and uh, we'll, we just got our arms around it, and we're there as volunteers now, and they'll run it. So that'll be a big change, um, though I think the basic feelings of the fair will be the same. We don't have a, we don't have a theme yet, so if anyone has any good ideas for this next year, let us know. We're just starting all up on that. You know, I think the fair looked and felt the same when I took over, but it was there was maybe still a little bit of division in the community around the fair because there had been some issues that had happened before I was there that made uh, people not sure how they felt about it. And so, so a lot of people had said, oh, I just am not going to the fair anymore. And I think we've turned that around. Um, a lot A lot of those people now feel great about the fair, and we've all come together and found ways to, to move forward together. So that's one thing. We did add the tug of war uh, this last year, and I think we'll keep the tug of war between the police and the firemen. Um, but in those early years, it just... Um, you know, there was a f some different faces that were our volunteers. Um, tents were falling down a little more. You know, we're in worse shape. We've been able to invest in getting some new tents. But I honestly feel like the magic of the fair is the same every year. And that magic is we show up in the park on Tuesday. And by Wednesday, all these other people start showing up in the park. And they yeah. just start making it happen. Like, it's just crazy. If there's a problem, someone shows up unannounced to fix it, you know. So that has always been. Finding vendors is easy. We've had some vendors that have been with us almost all 50 years, not quite. Um, but finding vendors is not a problem. Though maintaining the high quality that we strive for and non-manufactured goods that gets harder, and we have to really delve into people's um, into people's product a little more to make sure we're getting the best. Do you know how many people now were originally involved when it first started out? Yes, it's it amazing how many of the original people are still involved. I mean, Lori Loeb started it, and she still runs the drum circle. Um, and, I mean, Brenda Buchanan, and, yeah, there's a lot. I would say there's probably at least 20 people that still are actively involved that were there in the beginning. 
I, I would hate to move out of Soper's Park. I know some of the neighbors would probably love to see us move out of Soper's <laughs> Park, but I think it's the heart and soul. Um, we are getting a new swimming pool down the road here, and that will probably uh, expand a little bit into some of our yeah. space. Might take over the little... The Oasis. Yeah. yeah. So the Oasis might become more of a water park kind of play area, which could be fun as well. Um, but I think it worked really well bringing it out onto the street. And so our hope is to be able to keep that and keep the park a little more wide open. So I think we will see that kind of expansion, but hopefully we won't have to leave. Not fully go to another park. Yeah. If you did have to leave the park and go to another one in town, which one would you go to? Well, you know, and that's an interesting question because we do have to, we think of yeah. it all the time, and it has been suggested to us to maybe look at uh, the North Face North Park. Face but, you know, there's not much shade out there. There's not much shade. Yeah. No, I, I think as, as long as we can, we'll keep the fair where it is. And, I mean, I don't know. I think at the 100th anniversary, you guys will all be there. So I, I as I looked at Emmett after we finished the 50th, and I realized he's 14 years old, and I was 64. And so then I was counting, and I was like, guess what, Emmett? You are going to be my age, and you're not going to be far behind when it's the... 100th year anniversary of the fair. So I hope you you guys are all there. I probably won't be. I'm going to be there. Yeah, and you just remember me. Everyone should start, uh, if anyone has any good ideas or thoughts on the theme of the fair, they can contact me at amy at carbondalearts.com and we'll uh, watch out for the poster design contest coming your way in February. Thank you for listening to Take a Minute. I'm Andy B. You just heard from Sue Gray, Raleigh Burley, Greg Albrecht, and our bonus guest, Amy Kimberly, about some of the history of Carbondale. I hope you enjoyed the show. This is the Andy Zenka Youth Public Affairs Show, broadcast on KDNK Carbondale Community Radio. Stay tuned for part two in 2022 to hear more about Carbondale's history. See you next year.